And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's the little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. A six-game, 13-day road trip to open the season, and finally the Canucks get to play at home. They return home a team that is above 500, and we have the latest episode of the VanCast, Farhan Lalji and Thomas Drance joining you. Drancer, it's good to see you the other day in Seattle, and it's going to be exciting yeah. to see you tomorrow night here in Vancouver. Oh, I'm, I'm really excited to see what this building looks like again with fans like we've watched so many games there last season you know and and during the preseason with 50 percent like the idea that this building could be close to full now i i think there are tickets available we've seen that tickets are not like games are not selling out across canada right now and i think that reflects that while you know the authorities are permitting people to fill these buildings. There's still a confidence crisis coming out of the pandemic, like a, a confidence crisis as it pertains to how safe people actually feel uh, attending one of these games. But, you know, the idea that there's going to be atmosphere, real fan atmosphere at Rogers Arena, like that has me hyped for this week, Farhan. Well, before we get to the game that is, let's talk about the games that were and also the road trip that was for you because it was 13 days you know, we're, we're making the point that you're actually more excited to see Wallace, your dog, than you are necessarily to see your wife. No. Who's lovely, by the way, everybody should yeah, know she's this. She's the best. But, um, what was it like for you to get back on the road for an extended period of time after essentially two years when you were in the bubble last or a year and a half? Yeah. You know, Farhan, it is weird traveling right now. Like, it is a little strange. And I know you do it a fair bit for football, but it, I mean, things feel normal. But they're not, right? Like, it's very clearly not normal. It's very clearly not over. Um, you know, the masks, the testing. I mean, I, I dreaded. My, my biggest fear the whole time was that I'd test positive on, like, right before heading back over the border and be subject to a lengthy quarantine in Seattle, right? 
And I mean, that was like my my nightmare was that this 13 day trip would become a a month long trip, right? A month away from my wife and my dog, um, which I really didn't want to do, particularly with yesterday being Wallace's first birthday. So, uh, you know, it, it was it was interesting to navigate. And obviously we saw that play out at the team level, too. Right. I mean, John Garrett, of course. Uh, was not uh, on the broadcast um, because of protocols. Um, you know, my understanding is that the presence, like the protocol presence in the wake uh, of uh, Garrett entering, uh, resulted in some members of the Canucks traveling party, like one member of Canucks hockey operations staff, in addition to an additional security staffer, being uh, effectively sent home as close contacts, right? Like the team's taking no chances. Um, we're, we're interacting with players face to face, but, you know, in, in a sort of very specific type of way where I'm still masked up. I, I still don't have my like full device of, of <laughs> um, my face to emote, you know, and, and draw certain responses from guys, uh, which can be a little tricky. But, you know, fundamentally to get back on the road, to be back covering live hockey, to be back watching hockey games in full buildings and to be back getting, you know, quotes and, and having conversations with players. Right. I mean, you know, you look at the Garland piece, for example, that I that I wrote off of the home opener like that. That piece is not possible to do last year, you know, and I think it gives fans a really good sense of who this guy is. Like, that's the type of piece you want to write, like associating a moment with a guy, his personality, his work ethic, the chip on his shoulder, and then providing it so that fans have this deeper appreciation for a moment that they already enjoyed. Like, that's that's the work that you love to do in this business. That was work we couldn't do last year. So I'm so grateful to be able to do it now. And yet, you know, the Canucks play the Blackhawks and then they have three guys enter the protocol. Right. And then, and then you, you test and uh, all indications that I got last night were that, you know, there's no concern. I, I don't think there's any positives among the Canucks group. That's great news. Uh, you know, clearly the vaccines have not just cut down on, severe cases or cases even with symptoms among NHL players, as, as we saw with Nathan McKinnon, who was asymptomatic and noted uh, that the vaccine must be working, but also, you know, has stopped uh, the type of team to team transmission that we did see on occasion last year, um, you know, especially between the Buffalo Sabres and the New Jersey Devils. Like, that's great to see. That gives me a lot of confidence that we're going to have a, a normal-ish season, even though we don't know what's coming down the pike vis-a-vis <laughs> additional sort of mutations and, and what have you. But, um, you know, I, I do think we're going to get through this hockey season. I do think it's going to be abnormal, but but more recognizable than what we've had in the past. And, you know, I, I'm grateful to be able to go out on the road covering those games, even though it's not quite the same, right? Like, it's not quite what it was. And also, I would add this. After 18 months basically spent, you know, largely at home, right, with my wife working from home, like not going to the office like she used to and me not hitting the road like I used to. And when I did hit the road for Edmonton, I brought her, um, you know, I missed my family more this time just because I wasn't used to being away from them the way that I had been in my usual hockey nomad lifestyle <laughs> um, prior to the pandemic. So it was definitely an interesting experience here, Farhan. Yeah, and for me, I, I had the family away in the other direction because my son was playing in a hockey tournament in Sycamouche. They got back yesterday. I didn't go up because I wanted to be in Seattle for that game and knew that it was a bit of a historic event and you know just a chance to go there for a franchise opener and a, and a building opener, which was an electric building, by the way. But for, And then I had a chuckle when we went downstairs and Travis Green saw me in the little press room and, and had a chuckle himself. And <laughs> oh, yeah. said, oh, look at the cat drag. 
<laughs> I think he was just relieved to see a face that wasn't mine. <laughs> yeah, it could be. It absolutely could be. But let's yeah. start with the Seattle game and just the building, the atmosphere, the scene. Wow, just seeing that atmosphere, it it just looked fabulous on so many levels, right? I mean, you knew that everybody had a sense of just what a historic day was going to be. But just looking at the crowd itself, the amount of branding that had been done, the amount of jerseys that had been worn, um, it, it looked like a, an organic hockey crowd. It didn't look like a manufactured hockey crowd or a, or a corporate hockey crowd, if you know what I'm saying, right? I mean, we've had that in Vancouver from time to time where it just wasn't as loud and noisy because it was full of, you know, suits, right? Whereas this was nothing like that. And just the the vibe in that building was a special thing to be a part of. It felt on concourse level walking in because you do have to go through the concourse to get up to that press box um, or down to the event level for the media meal, which, you know, I didn't skip. Um, you know, when you walked through and saw all the <laughs> all the fans in jerseys. I mean, it was a powerful display, right, from one of the great sports cities in on this continent. Like it was awesome. It felt like an army. Like the Seattle fans came out and they felt like an army. Um, and then they were as loud as any fans that I've heard in any building in a, in a non-playoff game, maybe ever live. Like it was awesome. It was a great environment. Uh, tremendous, like tremendous work. Kudos to Seattle. I love talking to some of the fans on the concourse too. people who were like, I'm not even a hockey fan. I'm just so excited. And it's like, oh, you'll be a hockey fan. <laughs> like this, it's just a matter of time. And uh, and yeah, I mean, I think this is going to be a big win for Canucks fans who get to travel down there and, and watch games in that great venue once the border opens, but also, you know, just for the NHL. Like, I think it's going to be awesome to have a, a hockey team in that market. They seem ready to embrace it and then some. Yeah, I'm looking forward to the moment where they can actually talk about hockey because coming back and listening to the postgame show after we were done, it was just, it was kind of like what it was in Chicago when the franchise first turned the corner and Taves and Kane came mm. and they, you know, the, the franchise there was, you know, just very morbid and and you looked at it and, and thought, how is this going to survive? But then the ownership situation happened and all of a sudden fans started getting re-engaged. But when you listened to it, they couldn't talk about hockey in any kind of meaningful way. It was about their own team. And in this case, it's about they can't even talk about their own team yet because they don't even know them. It's just about how great this is to have the team here and the newness of it all, as opposed to actually being able to talk about the game one way or the other in any form of critical way. So, you know, I'm looking forward to the crowd getting educated about the sport at this level their own team and then what the rest of the league looks like and and who's important but as far as what we saw on that night you saw a Canuck team that actually came out really well for the first 15 minutes or so and then they took that one penalty uh I think it was Lamico who took the penalty late in the third or first period and from that point on for a meaty period of time they were getting run out of the building. Yeah, I mean, you know, at, at, at the end of the game, I looked back and I thought, you know what? On the whole, the Canucks weren't as bad as I felt like they were through so much of the game. But that's what happens when you go 16 minutes without a shot in the second period. Like, other than the second period, they were the better team in the first and the third. It just never felt like that because when the Canucks start to get stuck in their own end it's like you know minutes pass like whole minutes pass where there's just nothing going on but survival right like just hanging on by their fingernails and that happened to them in the middle of the period uh, middle of this game uh, i do think seattle controlled this for the most part right and they created that 
probably should have been game winner, the 2-1 goal in the third period, by, you know, just repeatedly. And it was repeatedly, especially on that left side of the defense, where the Canucks were just getting stuck at the red line. And Puck was coming back and coming back fast. And, you know, Seattle was punishing that. They just weren't quite capitalizing. Finally, they did. And then the Canucks get, you know, Yuho Lamico makes up for the bad penalty he took in the first, draws one. Bo Horvat, gritty goal. Who else would have scored it but but Bo, right? I mean, I I told him post game. Did you see that exchange between me and Bo post game where he came in and the Zoom wasn't quite ready? And I was just like, yep. you always score in loud buildings. And he's like, I'll take it. <laughs> um, that was that was funny. But the but he, you know, I mean, who else? Who else would have done that? Right? Like he is really brandishing his resume as this like big game player. And this was a big game. Like this was the biggest game that the Canucks have played with fans in attendance in a decade, frankly. Um, you know, this in terms of national eyeballs and attention and 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 it mattering in a wider historical sense, like this was a big game. Horvat came to play, they tie it up. And then what was interesting was the pressure that was just withering from the Kraken before the Garland game winner, right? They again can't get it out. The Kraken come in and this time they just overcommitted and Garland made them pay. But it was like that was the key dynamic was the Canucks getting stuck in the Kraken pressing. And the fact that the game winner was created on that sequence just with Garland counterattacking. And it was a really great individual effort, not just the goal and not just the race. But if you go look and watch him knife the puck away from Kelly Yarncroft, and then it's his pressure that creates the bad pass from Jaden Schwartz. Like that was that was all Garland, all Garland. That was not luck. That was not a fortunate bounce. And he was fresh like Garland created that break entirely and then finished it off with a pretty cunning move uh, to fool Philip Grubauer. Uh, I mean, overall, when I look at that game, the Canucks didn't play well. It, it, or well enough. They certainly didn't inspire confidence. Um, I'm still enormously concerned by the way that they're getting stuck in their own end on a repeated basis by any team with average speed. Um, but I do think when you look at when you when you sort of zoom out and try and not emotionally react to the 16 minutes we saw in the second or or some of those lengthy shifts that the Kraken were able to engineer in the third, like the Canucks were probably on balance aside from those stretches, um, you know, better than we felt in real time. Those were long stretches. And before we dive deeper into Garland and a few of the other things around that, um, they got through it because of Thatcher Demko. Now, Thatcher being Thatcher probably wanted the second goal back, maybe. But beyond that, the guy was electric. I mean, he, you know, we, we've seen we've seen bubble Demko. I know we're beyond that. He doesn't like hearing that. But he looked pretty good throughout this game. Oh, more than pretty good. He was incredible. I thought that was you know, like in Edmonton, I thought that was, you know, those are stolen points. I mean, some of those saves were magnificent, unlikely, incredible. Uh, and when you look through what Demko's done now at this point, like among NHL goaltenders that have faced at least 30 high danger scoring chances per natural stat trick, uh, Demko has an 870 save percentage on high danger chances. He's faced 55 of them. In six, wow. in, sorry, in five games. So he's facing 11 per game on average. He's stopping almost 90% of them. That's a figure that leads all NHL goaltenders, right? And where would this Canucks team be without that? I mean, truly, he's been uh, he's been their best player, frankly. As good as Garland has been, as good as Hughes has been on uh, in moments when he's been, you know, not in the lineup or when he's been in the lineup, um, you know, no question for me. 
Thatcher Demko is Vancouver's best player through the first, you know, road trip anyway. Meanwhile, we were at Climate Pledge Arena. We had, we had a climate denier in, in the form of Travis Green after the game saying, wait a minute, they, they, we didn't have him for that many high danger chances. Oh, that, that was the Seattle game? Yeah, like he was he was denying how much they were underwater at, at times throughout the game. But just when he was asked about the number of high danger chances against, he didn't agree with the stats. Well, the Canucks have their own internal stuff, right? I mean, the Canucks, you know, for example, for example, like Travis Green's conversant in expected goals, like expected goals is a topic that he understands is conversant in weights in terms of how he rates players and makes decisions like that. It's something that he looks at and cares about, but he doesn't call it that. Like, that's not what it's called because the internal reports have their own, you know, uh, way of describing it. I, I don't remember or or know offhand what, what exactly he calls it, but it's not what I'd call it, which is expected goals or, or what the public would call it, which is also expected goals. So, you know, it's an interesting dynamic. And yeah, I mean, he's got different numbers. Like he's got different numbers that he's looking at. Sometimes they agree. Sometimes they don't. And, you know, I'd, I'd expect, frankly, considering the intelligence of the people that the Canucks employ in that uh, analytics department, right, which is sort of led by John Wall and then Aiden Fox. You've got Ryan Beach, and they added a gentleman named Miles Hoken to the to the group this offseason. You know, that's uh, I, I mean, I, I would I would tend to favor their metrics over the publicly available ones that rely mostly on on location data, right, and are are put together by spiders as opposed to a guy manually checking the information every time it happens, right? So. You know, and when you do have those moments, it's not a surprise, right? It's not a surprise. And I, I tend to give precedence personally. And this is not me deferring to authority. Like, this is just based on what I know of what goes into how the sausage is made for the publicly available data versus, you know, what I'd expect goes into the sausage being made internally for the Canucks. Like, I'd probably weight the internal data a little more heavily than I weight what we are, te- what we tend to be looking at on a game to game basis. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Great article by you in The Athletic on Connor Garland. And you had a chance to talk to some of his former teammates, including uh, Keith Yandel, uh, among others that he spent time with in the Boston area. And and just they talked a lot about A, his nonstop work ethic and B, his competitiveness at everything he does. Um, you know, you, you talk to him a little bit about it afterwards. And, you know, even as something as simple as a fan giving him the finger at the bench completely gets this guy's engine cranked. Yeah, Garland is, it doesn't seem to take a lot 
to get Garland hyped up. Like I loved, I talked to Ryan Donato who was just carving his buddy, right? Says he brings a trophy to the golf course. Like, I loved that. I just thought that was such a funny note. Um, you know, and then, uh, he t- tells me that, tells me that Garland will sometimes not speak to him for the rest of the day if he loses at golf. And, and I brought it up to Garland after the zoom and I thought his reaction was just amazing. He's like, no, no. Well, uh, okay. There was one incident in the summer, but he cheated. And it's just like, oh man, <laughs> like that's, you're that guy. <laughs> and that guy is a, is a good thing. The um, the, it's just a good thing, you know. It's a good insight into what makes a guy who went undrafted, who is undersized, who plays the game this way, who has no problem pissing off everybody who who's on the other side, right? Um, it's a good insight into why he's wired the way he's wired, and he's obviously wired a little bit differently, uh, even with the way he plays. I, I thought his comments on playing a unique style uh, seemed really self-aware, right? Like he does play a unique style. He does these weird spins along the wall, like his entire approach to creating space and slowly working the puck uh, out front of the net is, you know, deliberate and individual in a way that like I've very rarely seen. And, you know, I, I just, there's, there's something up there. He's a really fascinating guy to watch. Um, definitely a fascinating guy to talk to. And he's a, especially a fascinating guy to talk to others about, um, which was sort of the meat of that piece. And I, I was really happy with it. I was really happy with the reaction. Uh, so thanks to everyone in that comment section who left such nice comments about it. Like, you know, when, when I talk about being able to do those face-to-face conversations, like truly it's, it's the comments that are like, you know, this made me appreciate who Garland was as a person. Like, there you go. That's that the long hours, the work, like that's, that's the moment you're looking for in this business sometimes, right. Is to, is to create that deeper appreciation. So, um, yeah, no, I was really happy with that piece. And I thought the Garland moment, the goal, the stare down, um, you know, it all sort of pretty, pretty neatly encapsulated everything I'd heard about the guy, um, which is that, you know, he's, he's a hardworking guy and he's, uh, as competitive as they come. Two years ago, we talked about having a guy like JT Miller and the importance of having somebody who could drag the rest of the team into the fight. Connor Garland strikes me as that guy and this club could use more of it. Yeah. He's also really good, right? Like that's such an important part. Like this is a top line rate score. You know, it's amazing. For example, Farhan that he scored as much as he has, he's over point per game. He's not on PP one. Like he's not doing this with the benefit of, you know, a bunch of power play, secondary assists. Like this is all hard points. Um, that makes what he's doing a little bit more impressive for me anyway, right? Like if you're getting a guy who's producing like this, leading your team in scoring and it's not, you know, off of just like outside puck movement that ends up going into the net off of a rebound, like it's pretty incredible, right? Like that's a big weapon, a big weapon. Obviously he's been full value for the Canucks in the early going. Yeah. The good setup on the Bo Horvat goal, but do you get the sense that overall that individual style is meshing completely yet with Horvat and Pearson? I don't think it is. No. I, and you know what? I'm not sure it will. Like I'm not ultimately sure if that's going to be a fit, but look, they, they seem to think they're making progress. I think they had three really good games on this road trip overall. And one was Buffalo, one was Chicago and one was Seattle. So, you know, three of the last four have been really good games for that line, but you know, I didn't think they did much in Buffalo uh, to put it mildly. Um, Philadelphia and Edmonton, they certainly were underwater on the shot clock. And and when you look overall at the numbers, I mean, we're talking about 65 minutes sample. So like, we're not talking about a ton of um, predictive or evaluative value here, but 
you know, it's like a 42% expected goals, right? Like that's really not what you're looking for from a line with players as talented as Horvat and Garland on it. Um, so, you know, I work in progress. I want to see them play probably another 35 to 40 minutes together before I start to say like, Hey, they should separate this line. Uh, the results haven't been bad enough that I'd say it's, it's not working. They certainly haven't been good enough that I'd say there's a lot of potential here. I think, I think they've, they've been sort of in that range where the offense has been there and the moments have been there, but the, uh, just consistency hasn't. And that, that to me is just like getting, you know, that that's consistent with getting some, you know, uh, chemistry, building that chemistry slowly between the trio. Uh, so we'll see where this goes. But yeah, I mean, to this point, I don't think that line's been like a, a killer, even though they had a great night in Seattle. Meanwhile, another line that hasn't seemed to be figuring it out, because, you know, when you when you look at this line, I mean, Garland and, and Horvat and Pearson, just from a production standpoint, has been somewhat carrying the team, even though they haven't necessarily meshed. But we've got the Pedersen line. Boy, this group, I mean, is it as simple as just saying that Petey just was late to camp and it's been his first game in eight months and we've got no problems here. Is there any reason for anybody to be concerned about how that group is playing and how Pedersen individually is playing? Yeah, I think the, well, look, the Pedersen thing is difficult to unpack and I talked to him. There's a piece up at the athletic today, uh, why I'm not worried yet about Elias Pedersen and other observations from the Canucks six game road trip. And, and here's some, what he told me Farhan, this was on Saturday. He said, my game is definitely not where I want it to be. It's early in the year. I want to play my best hockey in every game. My game is not exactly where I want it to be yet, but it's only game six tonight. I know I'll find my game eventually and play to the level I expect. And that sort of raises the question of how much time do the Canucks have here? Uh, talking through it with him, like it did sound like the confidence, the just the confidence isn't quite there for him right now. Like he's not feeling like, you know, the imperious um, alpha point producer that he does like that he feels like when he's at his best like he he there's something missing there for him on the ice day to day and you know not a huge surprise uh based on what we've seen but you know he he also refuses to make excuses about missing camp right like he said to me yeah maybe when I, when I brought up the missing camp factor and more importantly, the missing eight months factor. Um, and he said, the situation though is what it is. I miss camp. Like we're past that. I'm just doing the best I can. And we were doing the best we could to prepare for the season. I just haven't found the game I want yet. And so we're, so we're, you know, at this point where the lotto line's really not spinning and like, how crazy is this far on? Like this was the, one of the best two way lines in hockey over the last two years. Uh, through 20 minutes, only 20 minutes, like they only got thrown together in the Buffalo game. So it's been two games in a, or not even two games because they got separated midway through the Seattle game. So it's been 20 minutes um, of, of five on five ice time with that, those three together. 23% expected goals rate per money puck with those three on the ice together. 23%. Like that's wild. They haven't given up a goal against. They haven't scored a goal for. Uh, I think there've been moments where I can see the four checking game that they lean on so heavily begin to crank into gear, but the quick strike offense, the finishing, that stuff's not been there and neither has their ability to play in the offensive end. Like they have been on their heels when they've been on the ice together to this point in those 20 minutes. Um, you know, I said that <clears throat> I said that the level that the Horvat Garland line was at like necessitated necessitated some patience. 23% like, man, that's a, that's a, that's a rate where they're on a short leash. Like I'm not surprised knowing that now that they got separated so early in that Kraken game. And I'd be really, really tempted, I think 
that if they if I'd be tempted to split the line. Honestly, it's it's so bad. It's so bad, even though the sample is so small that I'd just be like, nope, nope, I don't think so. Um, you know, you guys want to play together. You you earn that back by by having some heavy shifts with different line mates. And, you know, the other thing that I'd be really thinking about if I was the Canucks would be, you know, Elias Pettersson. Getting Elias Pettersson going is pretty much the most important thing that this team has to do, right? They have one guy, one guy right now in the lineup who, no matter who you put him with, that player is going to get their chances. Who's that player, Farhan? Nils Hoaglander. Nils Hoaglander. So if Nils Hoaglander is Mr. Fix-It, and the most important thing you've got to fix and get going is Elias Pettersson, like, put them together. And they did that against Seattle, but, you know, they were playing with Matthew Highmore. Like, give them JT. Give them give them JT on left wing, Pedersen, Hoaglander. I'd be going with that. I know that's a tough beat for Brock Besser, but, you know, that's how it's probably going to work all season. Like, one forward is going to be playing pretty regularly outside the top six because, you know, if Pearson's always with Horvat, you sort of got seven top six forwards. Like, one guy's always going to be driving the bus elsewhere. Uh, Besser's a guy who's had success driving other lines. He's a smart enough player that he can set guys up. Um, you know, I'd put him down elsewhere right now because I'm just not concerned about him. Like, he's going to be fine. He, I think he's playing well. I think he's going to get his chances and help manufacture chances for other players. But, like, getting Pedersen going is pretty much everything. Like, the whole ball game for this Canucks team right now, I, I'd consider going with something like Miller, Pedersen, Hoaglander, if only to just, like, get Pedersen feeling good. Like, to, to get him to a point where he's having fun again. Because once he's having fun, then, you know, you're going to start to see the best of Pedersen. And, and then you're going to have, you know, your ace in the deck. Right now, the Canucks are trying to win without their ace. Um, and that ain't easy in any sort of Trump game. Yeah, there's no question. But when I look at it also, I, one of the reasons they put those guys back together. Yes, we know Brock Besser missed the first four games. But in addition, I think they put them together to get PD going. And and certainly in terms of solutions, I like yours better than the alternative, which is take JT Miller off that line, which means JT Miller goes back to center, which is not good at any time. So I don't want to see that happen at any point this year, although we know that it is inevitable at some point. But is there something specific you see missing? Like, I just don't see, forget the goals. You know, he had a, a yeah. dynamic style, a creativeness to his game that. Just he, he doesn't even seem to be attempting it at, at this point in terms of his ability to carry the puck and make things happen for himself. He always used to create his own chances. It wasn't necessarily what he did back and forth with, with Miller and Besser. It was just he had that it factor, especially that first year. And I don't even see him attempting to make those kinds of plays. No, no. I mean, I the, I don't see him carrying the puck the same way. Like he just doesn't have the puck the way that he usually has, right? And that's why I spotlighted today. Like he's he hasn't drawn a penalty five on five, and more than that, like when PD's been on in the past, far on. You remember the experience of watching Pedersen get like hauled down and there's no call, and that happens like once a period, and you're like, man, they have to call that. You know, like we're not even seeing that because he just doesn't have the puck the way that he usually has. Um. Yeah, I mean, I it's hard to diagnose exactly what's up, but the two things that stand out to me is he just doesn't have the puck as much as he usually has uh, because he's not drawing penalties. Like, that's what that tells us. And the other is his shot attempt rate is down like 60% from where it was in 2019-20. And that, to me, is the bigger concern because what does that tell us about the comfort level that he's dealing with regarding his wrist, right? Like, that's the that's the real 
sort of rub here, like the thing that keeps me a little bit concerned because a lot of Pedersen's concerns are percentage based, right? Like he hasn't converted a single five on five shot. He's the second best five on five finisher in the NHL going into the season for the last three years. Like only Dreisaitl has converted a higher rate of five on five shots over large samples than Pedersen. Like that's, you know, not going to last. He's going to have his, he's going to finish, Um, you know, his on ice shooting percentage is under 5%. Like that's, unsustainable unless you're Daniel Winnick or Scott Gomez or something like that, like a guy with no finish at all, much less a, a guy with Pedersen's, you know, characteristic pinpoint accuracy uh, that will bounce back. If both of those numbers were at his sort of career norms, like he'd be a point per game player and we wouldn't be talking about this. And and that would require no change to his overall two way form. So part of this is bad luck, but there are a couple things I'm concerned about. And the two things I'm eyeing in particular are that shot attempt rate, and the penalty drawn rate, because I think those tell us uh, or those at least pose some pretty interesting questions. One about his overall health and the other about, you know, how much he's actually handling the puck in game. I, I just don't see, you know, the level of dominance and 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 battle winning that I have tended to in his NHL career to this point. Yeah, you know, it's funny because there were times early last year where I felt the same way early in the season where he just wasn't taking those shots especially on the power play and I know that a few that he took wound up hitting iron and everybody said that's the real issue um you know and it it just looked a little different than what it had looked like the previous year but eventually his shot like his the number of attempts came back like you know that confidence came back and so I'm kind of putting it into that context that he's been through this before just in terms of his desire to let it rip especially on the power play but eventually it came back and You've got to believe it's going to at some point here, but I'm curious to see if he'd ever cop to the health side of it. No, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't assume he would. I mean, his his comment on his wrist over the summer was like, you know, going into it, I was a little bit concerned. But as I worked through with my shot over the summer, there was, you know, nothing encumbering me. There was no pain. And so, you know, I, I think he sort of said his piece, but. Uh, I mean, it's not it's not just the shot rate. It's the attempts that are down massively in all situations. And, you know, that that's just something to watch for. Like, maybe we'll see it go up. Maybe it's just small sample noise. That's very possible. But, you know, when we know that there's an external uh, potential health related explanation, right? I, I do think it's something we look at a little bit differently than just being like, well, that's noise or like, oh, it just has to shoot more. Like, I think it I think it poses some more interesting questions. Uh, the data does anyway. So the Canucks end their first road trip to begin the season here, three, two and one. And what was interesting is that after game four, that effort in Buffalo where Travis Green challenged his team in the biggest way. I mean, he was all over them. You were at the practice when they got skated really hard uh, before the Seattle game or sorry, before the Chicago game. And they came out in that Chicago game and it wasn't necessarily very good in the early going and then they you know they had the uh, the Tanner Pearson deflected goal you talked about that in the athletic as well what's your overall takeaway from this road trip because you know they they lost the Detroit game which they clearly should have won the Buffalo yep. game was a debacle uh you know they they had some moments underwater against Seattle they didn't start well against Chicago what's your takeaway through six games yeah i think yeah i'm uh, one thing i can't figure out farhan right now is like in terms of the run of play, right? In terms of the run of play, the Canucks are not doing that badly. Like, they're a middling five-on-five team in terms of the run of play. That's sort of a 
a level at which if their special teams can be good and if they get good goaltending and if they can finish, which I think we expect this group of forwards to be able to do, you know, then they're going to be, you know, definitely, definitely a playoff team or close to it, right? Like really close to it. If that, if that logic holds, they're going to be fine. However, when you account for shot location, right? They're the third worst expected goals differential team in the early going this season ahead of only Columbus and Anaheim. Like that's not the company you want to be keeping. And so there's a really big gap, like a wider than usual gap between what the Canucks are managing in terms of zone time and what they're managing in terms of the quality of looks they're generating versus what they're surrendering. And the biggest impact on that is the offense. Like they're just not generating nearly enough five on five um you know the defense i'm not saying the defense has been like great shakes they're not the you know lou lamorello new jersey devils or anything but uh, but like offensively is where the the differential gap is really sort of come to bear um that to me is the biggest concern uh, you know can this team start to generate chances again um you know i think we expect them to because i think we expect petterson around in the form I think we maybe are even seeing the Bo Horvat line round into form uh, th- that will help like those. That's what they're really missing is is consistent, sustained offensive push from their top six. Without it, this team is not a playoff team like period like they need to get that going and they need to get it going fast because, you know, Minnesota's coming in here on Tuesday like Minnesota controls play really well, better than almost anyone in the league like this Minnesota team is really imposing five on five. Um, probably the best that the Canucks have faced yet. Like, not probably. The best five-on-five team the Canucks have faced yet is coming in on home op- uh, during, for the Canucks home opener. Like, that's going to be a really big test. They cannot, they cannot struggle to generate high-danger looks offensively against Minnesota the way that they have against other teams. So they're going to get shut out. Like, they're going to, <laughs> they're going to get. They're going to lose decisively unless they can do that. So for me, that's sort of one big thing that this club needs to do. The other thing that I, I'm still concerned about, you know, we see all this disorganization or looks of disorganization at times um, here and there for the Canucks game at five on five. And for me, Farhan, part of that is I, I wonder how much confidence the forwards have in the defense to make the right place. Like, are they confident blowing the zone? Are they confident you know, skating, knowing that a pass is going to hit them, even if they're 25, 30 yards away from their defensemen uh, who aren't Quinn Hughes and, and Oliver Ekman Larson. Uh, I'm not sure. Like, I, I do think we're seeing the seams and a lot of the problems that we're seeing from the Canucks is neutral zone game, the inability to break out, um, you know, a, a, a lot of those sort of issues, like a lot of them come back to me. And people are like, why is this team so disorganized? And I'm looking at it and I'm being like, what do you expect with this blue line personnel? Like, you know, when, when I was talking about it as an Achilles heel and talking about the struggles transitioning and how hard it is to spend time in your own end or in the offensive end when you when your defense isn't you know up to snuff. Um, I mean, a lot of that looks the way that I'd expected it to or worried that it might uh, to me, even though the results have been more favorable. For the Canucks over six games, like I do think we're seeing problems in that area in particular, and that's an area where there's no easy fix. You mentioned the Canucks game against the Wild is the first of a seven-game homestand, which we will dive into when the show returns. 
And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Victorinox, the makers of the original Swiss Army Knife, have been a reliable companion for life's everyday challenges, mastering functionality, innovation, iconic design, and uncompromising quality with its products. The Victorinox Swiss Army Knife provides you with all the things you don't think about until you need it. Tweezers, a screwdriver, and even a corkscrew. With the Victorinox Swiss Army Knife, you can be prepared to master everyday life. You can find Victorinox Swiss Army Knives at Dick's Sporting Goods. So Durant's reached the Canucks and Wild on Tuesday night, the first of seven games. They follow that up by taking on the Flyers on Thursday. They host the Oilers on Saturday. Rangers, Predators, Stars, and Ducks also on the menu. And you mentioned, I mean, the Wild are a team that they hold on to the puck. They know how to control the puck and play in the opposition end. You know, what do the Canucks need to change and how much will matchups potentially help this team right now yeah i mean one thing that one thing that i do think we're going to see especially once they come home and travis green has last change like i do think this is especially where uh paradoxically we're going to notice the absence of guys like brandon sutter and, and tyler mott in the event that he's not back in time for tuesday which at this point i don't expect considering that he didn't join them on the road trip um you know i, I do think that this is an area where um, and especially against the wild, like having a bottom six group that's, you know, held together uh, by, you know, I don't want to say ticky tack, but certainly is, you know, ha- has a lot of bodies, like a lot of high mores, a lot of p- Lamicos, a lot of chase on types on it um, could be a bit of a problem, especially because the wild come at you, you know, and, and in their bottom six, you know, they've got guys like. You know, Nico Sturm and Marcus Foligno and Nick Bugstad, like guys who can do damage offensively. Um, This is going to be a real test for Vancouver's bottom six, like against Minnesota. That's sort of the first thing that stands out. Obviously, we know what Kaprizov can do. We know what Zuccarello can do. We know what Fiala can do. Like they're dangerous pieces. Um, But, you know, for me, where where the danger is going to be greatest against this wild team is that they've got bottom six pieces that can do real damage offensively. Uh, How the Canucks contain that and match up with that. I think is going to be a real test and it's going to be a real test, not just for the forwards, but also for Burroughs and, and Rathbone uh, and perhaps Luke Shen, who, you know, we'll see a lot of, you know, we'll see a lot of those minutes, uh, probably Rathbone and Burroughs at this point. Right. Like, I don't think there's a ton of suspense there um, in terms of the makeup of Vancouver's third pair. So, yeah, it, that's that's the one thing that I'm looking at with Minnesota uh, in particular is how does Vancouver's bottom six handle the offensive threat posed by some of the depth forwards that Minnesota is going to ice. Uh, you know, I want to, I want to, I want to talk about Seattle really quick, by the way, how weird was that experience on Saturday morning at the morning skate, like listening to them figure out last minute, pro- you know, preparations, like the sound of hammering ringing through event level. Yeah, it was different. <laughs> like, like, like it, clearly there was a ton to do. They, they, they needed every minute. The fact that this team opened up on the road for two weeks because they needed the extra time. Uh, when you look at even when the television cabling went down, it was like four in the morning before the game, following up the two concerts. They needed every minute to get ready. Yeah. And, and so what does it tell you that they needed every minute and the NHL still gave 
the Canucks three additional days. <laughs> like, like the only other team that hasn't played a home date yet is the New York Islanders, and they don't do it till November 20th. Like their building is under construction right now. And yet the Canucks will be, other than the Islanders, the last team to play a home date. And that's obviously the league sort of um, looking at sizing up the jurisdiction of British Columbia, which has been the trickiest for them to deal with throughout this pandemic and understanding that if the, the Canucks wanted to sell out their building, like they needed as much time as they possibly could have been given. They were given maximum time. And how, how amazing is it? Like the 50% limit on indoor attendance is lifted a day before the Canucks home opener. Like the Canucks needed every hour to get to the point where they'd be able to fill Rogers arena, or at least be entitled to fill Rogers arena based on the laws of the land. Um, you know, that to me, like as we watch those preparations, that's sort of one thing that really stuck out to me, like for all the work I see going on right now, like the Canucks were the team that needed more time than this. Like that kind of blew me away when I was, uh, when I was sort of thinking it through on Saturday. Yeah, it's a great point. And certainly when the timing of Dr. Bonnie Henry's announcement came regarding uh, and the provincial government and that announcement came regarding capacity for uh, indoor events. I mean, yeah, you, you certainly had to look at the date and know that this was all kind of planned around this. What do you expect Canuck fans to respond like, right? I mean, do you, do you expect this? You, you know, we talk about the ability to sell it out. These things do take time. They don't instantly, you flip the switch and all of a sudden, you know, 17, 18,000 people are here, especially when you consider that when this team played last, it wasn't that simple because they weren't necessarily that good. Does the the fact that absence makes the heart grow fonder and, and people have been waiting to get to sporting events, like how much do you expect that to impact their attendance? Yeah, I mean, I do expect it to impact their attendance without question. Like, I, I mean, we've seen it in Toronto. We've seen it in Montreal. We've seen it across Canada that, you know, just because you're allowed to fill the building doesn't mean you can, right? There is still, you know, a real lack of confidence in, you know, the overall marketplace. I don't know. Like my, I know my parents would no, no chance they'd be comfortable going to a venue, like no chance. And so, you know, I'm sure that's true for a lot of people. And that's sort of what we're still up against in terms of, you know, in terms of the overall flow of where we're at in, in this sort of, you know, pandemic end game. Like I look through Ticketmaster, and, you know, there's a, I mean, it looks pretty well sold. Like there's a lot of tickets sold. Um, you know, I, I'd say we're looking at, you know, not like, not like 10%, maybe 10% of tickets in ticket inventory remaining here for, for Rogers arena. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's wild. Like when have we ever said that for a Canucks home opener? Like even when this team was bad, the home opener, you knew it would sell out. Right. Like this is a different thing entirely. This is a local public confidence issue. And clearly, like there's still work there. There's still work to be done in terms of making people feel safe to gather with 20,000 of their neighbors and, and support, you know, an entertainment product. Like we're, we're not there yet, even with the vaccine mandates, even with a 90 percent vaccinated population in, in, you know, Vancouver Coastal. And I'm curious to see what the masking situation looks like. And I know it's going to be uh, mandatory, but having gone to other events and you can tell me what the road trip looked like because in Seattle, they were masked. You know, there weren't people, I mean, I'm sure there were the odd people that we didn't see trying to push back, but you could see it in the stands. You could see it in the concourses. They were masked. 
they uh, were along with being vaccinated as per the requirement and um that was and, not you know, we expected to be that way in vancouver that that was not that was not the general course of things for me um you know I, like there were press boxes where people were widely unmasked to be totally honest with you right like um because really the nhl protocols only require masking on the concourse <laughs> and and i mean the the difference from city to city was mind-blowing when i was there right like You'd go to places like Philadelphia and Chicago and Seattle where mask wearing was the way we we are used to it looking in Vancouver. And then you'd go to other places where it really wasn't like really was not where you'd, you know, not see anyone with a mask the entire time you were out. So it's a it's a different world. And we're not we're not done here. Like we're not through the woods. Unfortunately, Uh, we're not going to be through the woods this winter and how that impacts consumption, how that impacts people's. Uh, desire to attend live hockey games. I mean, that's going to be something that teams and the business as a whole is contending with certainly for the next four or five months, at least. And and per- perhaps beyond that, hopefully not though. I was impressed with what I saw in Seattle, but like you, I've been to some other events. I was in Tampa, Florida for the NFL season opener. So you can only imagine what that looked like from a mass scoring yep. standpoint. Honestly, I don't know that Boston was significantly better when I was there for uh, for the uh, the Patriots uh, return for Tom Brady. So yeah, it'll be interesting to see what it looks like, but I you know, I fully have confidence that here in Vancouver it's going to be fairly positive from from that perspective yeah, me and, too. and people know what they're getting into when they walk in the door, right? There's no need to necessarily push back. Uh, in terms of the lineup we're going to see, does Vasily Podkolzin get in? We're seeing less and less of Chase on and and is it going to be between those two until until Mott gets back in the lineup. Well, you know, for me, it comes down to one thing that I noted after Brock Besser was put on the power play one. Not only did it score, which is always a good sign in terms of, yeah, we'll see that again. But Besser won a ton of puck battles. Like his work on puck retrievals was diligent and assertive in five on four situations after he replaced Chase on. And I, I, I think that was pointed like a pointed effort that he made like i want to keep the spot <laughs> i want to keep the spot and if i have to win every puck battle to do it i'm going to um you know i i thought that was clear clear from how besser performed in that net front role so you know i i if chase not on pp1 then we're looking at him playing how many minutes like five six minutes a night like pod colson surely can handle that right like at some point this club can't be approaching every game like it's must win right like you need to develop pod coals in two. I, I don't think the criticism of the coach um, and the coaching staff for removing pod coals in for the lineup was commensurate with what he's accomplished. Um, you know, across the board, his underlying data is probably the worst among Canucks forwards. Um, you know, I, I don't think he's been necessarily at a point where he can help a good team win games, frankly. And that's okay. He's 20 years old. Like it's going to take some time, but I also think he's shown in flashes uh, that he's going to get there, that he's going to be an impactful player in the NHL. And for me, everything that they do with pod Colson should be designed to get him ramped up to that point as soon as possible. Like I think by February, there's a real chance that he's one of Vancouver's nine best forwards. So how do you accomplish that? Um, you know, the AHL game is really unstructured. I don't think necessarily he's going to pick up the types of subtleties you need him to, to get to that level, just from playing 20 minutes a night in an unstructured environment in the American league where he'd probably dominate. But again, you know, is that what you want? Or do you want him to be a competent, you know, third liner for you, which is going to require him to be used to 
making plays off the wall at the NHL level and, and doing some of these subtle things that help a team connect play and retain possession. Um, you know, at the, in the, in the toughest league in the world, like that to me is the goal. So, you know, I, I mean, I've been pretty consistent here. I, I think they need to find a way to carve out a regular shift for him, a regular line for him and just keep him there and let him learn, let him rack up 500 minutes of experience. And then I think you're going to see a totally different player. Um, you know, now that they're at home, now that pod Colson can't be jumped matchup wise, like I, I think they have to figure out a way to get him in the lineup. Like they have to, especially before Mott comes back and necessitates a difficult decision in terms of who remains on the 23 man roster. Yeah, I tend to agree. And I think we're going to see pod Colson get back in the lineup as early as uh, Tuesday night. And you know what? In terms of what we've seen from Alex Chase on when he's had his power play minutes, has there been enough there to warrant more? I think so. Honestly, I've liked the power play performance from Chase on. He's good there. I, you know, I think he's been good there. I think he's been a little bit snake bit, but I think the power play has been good with him there. I think he's been good in that spot. I think he is good in that spot. But, you know, I also think that it's at its best when it's got the five guys, like the big five, right? Like Hughes, Miller, Horvat, Pedersen, Besser. And, you know, the, the change that I'd probably like to see at this point is Miller to go back to the net front, right? And, and Besser to go back to the flank. And, and I know that so much of what they initiate is initiated by Miller, that he's been really effective for them in that spot. But, you know, and, and look, I mean, the puck movement between him and Hughes was really good leading up to the Besser or sorry, the Horvat tying goal on Saturday. Like that was Miller and Hughes together being wildly intelligent to create that rebound. So, you know, not, not an urgent thing that I'm saying, like, we need to see this, like, you know, give, give them some time with Besser at the net front. See, see what it looks like. But you know, the, the next change to make if, if struggles persist in terms of generating meaningful duress for penalty killing units, like it's, it's flopping those two for me. And, um, you know, I'm, I, I, I'd be curious to see what that looks like, particularly because I don't know that Miller's been at his most efficient as the primary distributor on PP one to this point, like, not that that's the problem with PP one by any means. It's just that, you know, in the first six games, he hasn't been as effective in that spot, certainly as he was down the stretch in 1920, but also as he was, you know, in, during the 2021 season for me anyway. Yeah, and for for Miller, I mean, he certainly wants to play based on what he's shown us to this point. I mean, he wants to play on the side as opposed to down low. I mean, whether or not he's more effective there, and when you look at his game, you'd think this is where he should be. It's not always where he necessarily wants to be or how he right. wants to play. Well, what I like, though, about putting him low, too, is if you put him low, then between him, Horvat, and Pedersen, you have three lefties on the, on the downhill sort of on, on that side of the, on the right side of your one, three, one. And for me, there's an ability for all three of them to rotate. Like the good thing about Horvat Miller and Pedersen is that all of them can rip one timers, right? All of them can find are smart enough to find soft areas in the bumper. And all of them are pretty disciplined and brave at the net front. Like all of them can be lethal at the net front. So you can set up this rotation between them. You have Besser shot to play as a, as a threat on the weak side. And you've got Quinn Hughes directing traffic, which he does so well. I mean, that to me, like if you want rotation, if you want more movement on your power play, the most, the easiest way to do it is to flop Miller and Besser so that Miller, Horvat and Pedersen can read off each other and kind of switch places, create some confusion that way. Uh, for me, that's like, 
worth trying. Like that's if 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 the power play remains too stationary, like that's the most straightforward solution to it. But we've seen that from time to time. And have we seen enough movement? Because you're right. I mean, in theory, it should work that way, but it generally tends not to. They even when they're in those spots. No, I know. And and we I mean, as as Newell Brown pointed out on this podcast in the summer, right? Like the lack of rotation, the lack of movement was in his view, the biggest problem that the power play encountered. I don't know that we've seen a ton of meaningful progress, even though the power play has been productive anyway through the first six games. Last thing before we go, I do want to, I know you touched on it earlier and that is just the play of the blue line and how they're underwater quite often. And you know, they get stuck. Uh, I think Oliver Ekman Larson has played fairly well relative to what the expectations were coming in except i think I, I i'd go i'd go bigger with that i'd go exceptional yeah that's fair um i like what i've seen from him there's no question but when you look at poolman when you look at myers what are you seeing there and from rathbone i'm seeing a player confident with the puck but there's there's been some growing pains as you'd expect from him but let's start with myers and poolman yeah i mean i think we're seeing much of what we'd expect from tyler myers just generally speaking, like the offensive push is there, you know, like the Canucks are generating with him on the ice, probably more than they're generating with some of their other defensive options. But, you know, the defensive play, I think, is not where the Canucks want it to be in terms of using him in a matchup role. Like that's just not who he is. And they know that like they have the measure of the player and they see him clearly as a secondary puck mover, a good veteran guy brings a physical presence and, you know, is more offensively inclined than defensively inclined. So his minutes scale up when the Canucks are trailing and he typically doesn't play with Quinn Hughes and, you know, that's how they use him. And I think that's right. Like that's, that's right. That's the, that's the way to use Tyler Myers. Um, you know, I think he's been fine. I've, I, I have nothing to really say about him beyond that. Um, you know, Pullman, uh, in terms of five on five, like isolated five on five time on ice per game, he's still playing more than Ekman Larson, right? Like he's still playing more than Ekman Larson. So he's still playing a top pair role for me. And I do think that's a little too much. Like the defensive results have been there. I've really liked some of what I've seen from him, especially on in game or late game, like end game scenarios. I think he's been really effective for them. He's been used heavily. Like he's done a heavy lift uh, when the Canucks, for example, are, are shooting at an empty net. Like he's <laughs> logged a ton of ice time. Um, I think he's been responsible. I just think the the puck skills, you know, limit his effectiveness. And and when he plays too much with Hughes, I I, I don't love that combination overall. Um, Hughes and Myers for me have been really good. And or sorry, Hughes and Ekman Larson have been really really good. And I've liked the Rathbone Burroughs pair overall, though I don't think they had their best game in Seattle. Like that was the game where I thought you began to see the seams in terms of opponents getting behind them and grinding them down on the cycle and, and, and what have you. So, you know, I, w- I won't be shocked to see Luke Shen get in for game one against Minnesota, especially because of the offensive talent and the size that the Minnesota wild bring in their bottom six group. Um, yeah, that would, that wouldn't surprise me. I, I didn't like the Burroughs Rathbone game against Seattle personally, but overall that pair's done pretty well, limiting the chances against and limiting the amount of push that their opponents are getting. I, I've liked Rathbone. I think Rathbone's played really well. I think he's played, I think his defensive game is held for the most part, uh, bent, but not broken. And that's all you want to see from him. So, I mean, overall the way that I uh, assess the blue line, like there's been some really good individual performances for me. 
Ekman Larson's been tremendous, like a huge addition in terms of his defensive play to this point. Pro- uh, clearly Vancouver's most effective and efficient defensive defender um, this season to this point. We'll see if that continues. I-, I I think it will. I think we're I think we're going to see the Ekman Larson bounce back this year. I think we're we're witnessing it in real time. Uh, but you know, as a group, as a group, I'm just seeing them get stuck too much. And, you know, I, I, I don't think that's a surprise considering the overall quality of the personnel. And uh, what's not, so not a surprise is the overall quality of Tom Strange through six games with a chance to. <laughs> oh, you're just too kind, bud. Perfect columns on the road. You're getting to talk to players. Uh, I know it's been a good time for you, so I'm looking forward to seeing you at the rink again tomorrow, my friend. Likewise, bud. Going to be a lot of fun to, to see, you know, you obviously, but also, you know, this city out at a hockey game again. Um can't wait. We're looking forward to it, and we'll join you again next week. Have we decided? Are we doing the next one on Wednesday or Friday? Yeah, we got to recap the home opener, I think. I think that's pretty important. There you go. So we'll be back on Wednesday. And before we let you go, we do want to let you know that Craig Anderson of the Buffalo Sabres joins Ian Mendez and Haley Salvian on the Athletic Hockey Show. Also, David Backus visits Craig Custance and Sean Gentilly on the Athletic Hockey Show USA. And our good friend Eddie Lack stops by the Athletic Hockey Show with awesome. Rob Pizzo from... CBC Sports and Sarah Sivian along with Jesse Granger from The Athletic on Wednesday and their edition of The Athletic Hockey Show. As for us, we'd like to thank all of you for listening to the VanCast. Please follow us on your favorite podcast platform and don't forget to leave a rating and a review. Subscribe to The Athletic Audio Plus on Apple Podcasts to get all of that bonus content from our entire network. Start with a 30-day free trial and they're just 99 cents a month after that. And right now, Get an annual subscription to The Athletic for just $3.99 a month when you visit theathletic.com slash VanCast. For me, Drancer, I'm off to the Emerald City again. I'll be there for Monday Night Football tonight, and I'll see you at the rink tomorrow. Sounds good, bud. I'm really excited. (laughs) Let's go. What was it like for you to get back on the road for an extended period of time after essentially two years when you were in the bubble last or a year and a half yeah it was a lot in fact let me just go chase down wallace because he was in here with me and he just stole my wife's slippers and she's on a meeting in the other room so this is not going to go well i need to just chase him down actually let me let me come back and i'll answer this from the top sorry okay